Welcome to episode 26 of the Hoop Threads podcast. I'm here with NBA Drafts Twitter superstar PD Webb. How's it going today, boss? Wow, uh, starting out early. Thank you so much for the for the introduction. Thank you so much for being here. I'm um, doing great. Awesome, awesome. Well, appreciate you coming on. Thank you for your time. Um, let's start at the beginning. So where did your love for basketball begin and uh, how have you adjusted how you view, cover, study the game? Um, I was raised in a, in a LA basketball house. So um, on the gospel of, of Magic Johnson and uh, and to some degree, Bill Walton. Um, so I was always taught to look for the passer, look for the angles. Um, and as the game has advanced into this uh, pace and space, it's sort of, you know, the the ideas of, of UCLA passing has has really expanded into into a quicker game. Um, and so a lot of what I've taught has kind of come back into style. Um, it was hard to watch the, you know, the early to mid 2000 uh, jab, step, jab, step, jab, step, fade away. Um, and now we're in, in sort of like a beautiful game, but faster. Mm. Mm. Yeah, the, the speed is picking up at every level for sure. So who is your audience? You know, how has your target audience and writing style changed, you know, since you started? And, and, and you know, how long has it been since you got going? Yeah, so I think that I've been writing for about a year. Um, I think I put my first piece out like around Christmas last year. Okay. Um, and this draft, you know, cycle just ended basically, which is crazy. Um, yeah. I think my target audience is people who uh, have uh, some basketball background and want uh, as much detail as possible about uh, the idea of prospect development. Um, I write mostly long pieces that are very detail oriented, um, trying to understand exactly what's going on. So if I'm right or wrong, or, you know, if something develops in an interesting way, we can have a broader uh, base of what's actually true in development. You know, how good can bad shooters become? Uh, for guys who struggle to pass uh, out of combos, is that something that, you know, the NBA helps them develop? Does it happen in year one? Does it happen in year five? Does it happen in year 10? So getting as much uh, catalog detail as possible and, and building some anecdotal evidence towards, you know, the greater theories of, uh, of basketball development. Mm-hmm. Next goes to kind of just your your presence, I guess, on on social media and in general, kind of your writing style. Like you're you're clearly an intelligent person and a hoop head. Um, you're you're sarcastic, which I appreciate, but but never condescending. Talk about uh, that approach and uh, if that you know how intentional that is, I guess. Yeah, I mean it's it's really intentional because uh, I write you know mostly about people from the age of uh, of fifteen to twenty two, and they're always a name search away. Um, and I try to write about players in such a way that it's, that it's clear to them. I'm writing about their games and I'm writing about their games as an object of motion. So it's not, you know, this guy, um, is a bad jump shooter and he'll be a jab shooter forever. It's the jump shot is struggling and I'd like to see these changes made. So that way, even if they name search and, and find something that they may not agree with, um, they can see that like, I'm not trying to slam them or kill their career or anything like that. Um, it's the, like, I see this as, you know, something that can be built upon. Um, the other thing that, that kind of bothers me is that uh, we have sort of a culture of talking down mm. um, and punching down, uh, just people probably on the internet and specifically yeah. basketball. There's a lot of like, uh, you know, uh, vague messages about kids not making it because of mixtapes and trainers. And uh, there's not really that same energy when it comes to coaches, whether it be high school or AU mm. or, or college, not developing people. Mm. Um, and I think having a culture that's more uh, informed on development and is able to uh, look directly at, at the at the people who spend a day to day basis and say, OK, this kid came in, he couldn't shoot, um, you know, regardless of what Smith said, and he left, he couldn't shoot. So is that a is that a kid thing or is that a coach thing? 
Um, and so trying to push conversations, you know, again, it's really easy to just uh, to say mean things. It's much more difficult to, to uh, maybe lay out a case for uh, not casting a 16 year old as the villain in a story. Mm. Mm. Got you. Kind of in that same vein, um, you know, if you could have a basketball basketball conversation with any guy, you know, stats guy, coach guy, you know, living and or living or dead, kind of who do you model model yourself after, and you know, who would you really like to to work with and just bounce ideas off of in the future? I mean, Dean Smith feels like cheating um, <laughs> because Dean Smith is kind of all those. Hmm. Um, you know, Dean Smith. Uh, everybody kind of claims him as their guy. The stats guys are like, you know, he, he was really cataloging these things early. Um, the X's and O's guys, you know, stole everything they could from him. He's a, he's a culture guy. I mean, the same can be said of sort of that golden era of, of college basketball coaches who uh, created the, the blue blood, blue blood and dynasty system. Mm. Um, I, I'm obviously a huge Bill Walton fan. Um, and in terms of current college coaches, uh, I think Kelvin's probably the best thing going. Uh, we were talking before about uh, the, the, very simplistic work that he did to, to be uh, Beard's uh, uh, defensive rotations, uh, you know, yesterday. Yeah. Uh, and that would definitely be a guy that uh, I'd love to pick his brain on how he solved some of these things. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So when you're looking at a box score, what are you first looking for? And, you know, what stats that, you know, what box score stats or just, you know, advanced metrics are overblown to you? Um, when I look at a box score, the first thing that I'll look at is uh, total shots and, and total assists because I want to get an idea of, of what the game looked like. Um, obviously, box scores, just regular box scores have their flaws, as is everything. Yeah. But, um, you know, if if a team took 40 shots and, and one dude took 20, it's like, well, you kind of know what that game looked like. <laughs> um, regardless of how many assists he had, he had the rock in his hands all the time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just trying to figure out, uh, as much as you can uh, from that box score about, you know, what the pace looked like, what the shot selection looked like. Mm. Um, things that are, are overrated. I mean, everything has its its way it can be used. Um, I struggle with, with all-in-ones, um, especially black box all-in-ones, mm. um, because everything has, you know, every model has its type of guy that it loves. Mm. Um, and understanding where something has its uh, flaws or its strengths is essential to having a conversation using that. And a lot of times if you're just throwing, you know, if, if there's a person who isn't particularly uh, stat savvy and they're throwing an all-in-one, it's like, well, the top five players in this are, you know, def- defense first guys who who don't take uh, mid-range jumpers. It's going to be like, oh, those are the best players. It's like, well, not really. That's what this thinks that are the best by its own circumstances. And mm-hmm. obviously that exists not without context. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that more important than what's good or bad stats, it's what's good or bad faith use of those particular stats. Mm. Yeah, I had the Florida State associate head coach Stan Jones on last week, and he said stats are real interesting because you could, you know, you could use stats as far as you know losses of you know gaining of property and stuff, and say that Germany won the war, but Germany didn't win the war; <laughs> they got busted up pretty bad. I thought that was an interesting analogy, but but the point stands for sure. So take us through, you know, your you know the PD web, you know, talk about your your theory of uh, that that you've developed and you know what went into it and and some of the aspects of it. Yeah, so um, I really don't like rankings. Um, I guess part of it comes from like spending a lot of time around high school basketball, and it was never explained to me what they meant. Mm. Like the number five player in America, does that mean today? Does that mean in a year from now? Does that mean in college? Does that mean you know at the end of time at the, when it's all said and done? Mm. Um, 
and I always thought that, you know, there's so much that goes into the idea of rankings that it sort of loses what the actual conversation's about. And all people say is like, oh, you have this guy five. No, you should have him seven. It's like, well, why? Why are we doing it this way? This is the worst way to possibly do this in terms of having actual basketball conversations. Yep. Um, so I tried to think of something that would uh, make it so that those conversations wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't be a, you know, a way of saying uh, you had this guy here and not here. Why? It's that it would sort of be self-evident and then we could just get to the basketball. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I built this uh, saying that's it's eight different categories um, and you take a wing prospect and you say, this is the thing that is keeping them from being the best version of themselves. Um, and the eight categories are field tools, shooting, point of attack, defense, off ball defense, playmaking, dribbling, and their role. Um, and then within that, you know, if you're in closer to the center, you're, you know, probably further along as a prospect. If you're farther away from the center, you know, there's, there's more than one thing going, uh, that's preventing you. Um, and so to me, this, this made sense of, of both, you know, you get to sort of look at all of these categories in the report, but you're also focusing on, you know, what is the issue with his shooting? Um, you know, what, what needs to be changed? What doesn't need to be changed? Um, what exactly are we talking about? Um, and that made more sense to me. Uh, that's a little bit more work. And uh, my average report is, you know, it has, uh, it has gifts as, as film in there, but it, it runs between 30 and 50 pages generally for one guy. Um, and I'm fine putting in that extra, um, you know, I usually watch between, uh, 15 and 20 games of, of their draft eligible season, but I also believe in watching guys as long as possible. So like I've watched Melo since he was in seventh grade, um, you know, Ian Edwards since he was like a freshman, the end of his freshman year of high school. Hmm. Um, so having that, that longitudinal, um, exposure to guys allows you to kind of see through the context they have in, in college or, or overseas and understand that like they're a player who's in development Yep. and, you know, then sort of figuring out what it is that you're about. Uh, you asked, you know, what my, what my audience is. And I think that what I would like my audience to be at the end is people who have a more definite idea about what they believe about prospects. Hmm. I think it's also just not just that, but also their propensity, like if as far as watching them scouting past, you know, the the draft eligible year to also see, you know, between his freshman and senior, you know, junior year, there was incredible growth in this area. So, you know, you might be able to logically think that, you know, he can make growth in a different area, you know, based on his work ethic and based on, you know, his acumen and how he picks up things and sorts through information. Um, as far as picking which level the prospect goes in, is that, is there like, you know, statistical, statistical markers, um, you know, like he needs this shooting percentage to be this high, or it's just kind of based off of what you see after watching that film? Um, the way that I do it is sort of how much uh, effort I have to put in to try to convince myself they'll be an all-star. Mm. Um, but to probably put it in a, in a more, um, in a more direct way, it's uh, how perfect do you think their circumstance would have to be to uh, to work out? Like I, I operate under the assumption that like there is a way to make every player very, very good. Mm. So if you have a guy who's a terrible shooter, I'm talking just like, you know, Brandon Clark at San, Diego, at, at San Jose State level. Like you need to put him somewhere where he has a whole bunch of time off, where he, you know, is exposed to a great shooting staff. Um, he needs to also have, you know, these ridiculous touch indicators and he has to be willing to, you know, turn his... Uh, inverted shot put jumper into something entirely different. I'm like, that's a ton. Not every, like 
anybody who's worked with with players will tell you that like that's not that's not something that happens to everybody. That might not even even be a circumstance that happens to you know the first hundred dudes. So Brandon Clark, you know, as a if you were looking at him as a freshman in college, you'd be like, yeah, this is pretty unlikely. Um, so I think that it's it's sort of the you know how unlikely is it mathematically, but also like how how much uh, persuasion do you have to do of yourself to to see that? Hmm. Like how hard is it to to see them progressing to the to that? Yeah. Have you tweaked that at all as far as, you know, was, is this originally what you had? Is there things that you're thinking about adding to it? Um, so I kind of wanted to keep it this way um, for at least a couple of years, just because um, the purpose of, of like doing it this way is to like, I want to wear, I, I like to wear my, my misses, you know, around my neck. Mm. Um, I think that it's like the, the thing that I kind of dislike most about covering the draft is that everyone feels like they can be embarrassed by their misses. Yeah. Um, but it should be the opposite. Like your, your misses are what makes you good at this because you can be like, okay, so I thought Emmanuel Moutier was going to be a superstar. I thought Emmanuel Moutier was going to be a superstar because everything I heard about him, you know, behind the scenes was that he was a dog and that he was like the type of guy who, you know, would, would, you know, freak out after his losses, who, you know, would obsess over every single miss. And I put too much stock into it. And I also didn't realize, you know, how, how tough the adjustment was coming from overseas and, you know, the, the high school experiences. And I just, didn't, I focused on a small thing rather than seeing the bigger picture. Mm. And if I had hid that and been like, oh, people can't know that I, you know, was, you know, made a mistake in my job. Like that's not what being bad at draft scouting is. Being bad at draft scouting is not learning anything when you make a mistake. It's not being like, yeah, uh, I, I saw this wrong and I no longer do it that way. I've made an adjustment. Um, it's a, uh, uh, it's a dialectic, you know, you have thesis, antithesis, then synthesis, and that continues forever. It's not like you're right and you hide the misses. Yeah, until you have another miss, then you just hide again. Like you're you're consistently getting better in the same way that players are consistently getting better. They're exposed to something, they learn from it. They're exposed to something new, they learn from it. Got you. Next question is, you know, I heard you say that the handle is the hardest skill to improve. You know, talk about the difference between, you know, Instagram handle and real life handle and, you know, the details of skill development that accelerate that learning curve, you know, angles, foot placement, timing on the screens, reading hips, um, some of the more advanced stuff that you found, you know, helps in, in the dribbling stuff. Because, I mean, you could do as much, you know, between the legs, behind the back work as you want. But if you're not applying that, you know, in games as far as thinking two moves ahead, you know, this guy's shading over this way. So I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna hit him with one hard crossover and then go behind the back or something. You got what I'm saying? So um, talk about some of those uh, some of those details. Yeah, I mean, I think that like when we say people have like a, an Instagram handle, it's that like it looks cool, but also it's not ever things you actually do in a game. Mm. Um, like very rarely is there an eight dribble combo that leads to a layup. <laughs> Great to work on your hand strength. Like it has its uses, but it's not. Um, if you were to to look through, you know, a starting point guard or your starting point guards. Uh, games and, and looked at the moves that led them to layups in the half court, it would very, very rarely be the things that you see when you see the highlights of guys who can dribble. Um, and part of that is uh, that, like, I think that these move, these combination moves aren't, you know, particularly valuable in prior perception in understanding where the body is, but they're also not good at spatial relationships. Like most of handle is getting where you want to. Um, you know, we've all seen uh, the, the 43 year old uh, five foot seven point guard at the Y who can still like run an offense, even though like he can't do two between the legs. Yeah. Just because he understands the angles and he understands, you know, where the defender is going to be and understands, you know, how to alter his, uh, his, his hip height. He is capable of just getting you leaning the wrong way enough to, to sliver for two feet in the paint. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, that's the things that you're, if you believe that, that that's the stuff that should be valued and handled, that's what the training should look like. Yep. It should be circumstances where you're like, okay, get to the paint. Um, you have three defenders. Uh, you know, each one of them has one hand or each one of them, you know, is only going to push you this direction. You have to figure out which direction it is. Um, so it should be, you know, these varied uh, challenges that replicate game challenges, but in ways that allows for consistent learning. Um, and, and I think that's the difficulty that a lot of uh, skill development has is that like a lot of this stuff, if you want to work on it, kind of looks goofy. It isn't the things that I was raised with. I was raised with like the Soviet style we all stand in a line and we dribble a hundred times with our right hand and a hundred times with our left hand and we move you know, around the waist and that stuff works. Yeah. There's also the point where it doesn't translate because my hands are strong enough because they're quick enough, but I can't really move that well because that's not what I've been working on. I don't have the, the ability to coordinate and sell my moves because that's not the sort of thing that I've been practicing. Yeah. And one thing you, you touched on it real quick there too, as far as skill development goes, there's, there's a difference between trainers that are, are rebounders versus people that, you know, are actively moving and you get what I'm saying. Can, can you speak a little bit more on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, everybody has a different style. Um, and that for anyone that's, that's looking for, uh, a trainer or a person to, to develop, uh, a, a person, it's, it's, it's a, it's a union between, you know, the, the kid, their, their family, the, the coach, whether it's AAU in high school, and the trainer themselves and having a communication so that everybody's on the same page. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody may not have the same methods, yep. but if you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you always got. And so there has to be some sort of uh, willingness to do something different. I don't think that people really get to be better as shooters just by shooting. There's clearly more happening. Otherwise guys who go to the gym for six hours, but still shoot 33%, like that wouldn't happen. <laughs> um so I think that if you, you know, there's, there's a real value in going up and getting shots, you know, in between games or, or after a game, but for the learning phase, there has to be, you know, some new types of drills, some new types of, of experimentation. So somebody can expand their comfort zone. Yeah. I think a lot of it's, you know, being able to put in like reactive stuff and drills, as far as, you know, like you were saying, getting to the, paint with the dribble, you know, coach being in the paint and moving one direction or the other, and you got to do a dribble combo going the other way um, that, that stuff is just small details, but that, that helps make it more, you know, game applicable. So um, you said that the feel is also teachable. Um, it's, it's one of the eight you know, elements, I guess, of, of your web. Uh, so how, how do you go about teaching it? What goes into that? Okay. So um, I use the word feel rather than, than basketball IQ. Mm. Um, uh, I use them the same way, but um, IQ, uh, there are a lot of guys who are extremely smart at basketball. Um, who know the right read, um, who, you know, if you said, okay, so we're hedging pick and roll, there's going to be a short roll. Um, you know, the, the weak side defender is coming up. What read do you make? And they'd be like, oh, if they're you know, sprinting really hard, I throw it all the way cross court to the corner. If they're, you know, kind of jogging, I can throw the short roll. You can find a lot of people who can do that, but they can't do it on a moment by moment basis. So you have a lot of young guys who know the answer, mm-hmm. but they can't choose the exact moment. They don't, they can't navigate the controversy of that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what feel is to me. Like that, that's the separation between the two. Um, I think feel is teachable because you can replicate those moments. If somebody has, has problems with, with that exact circumstance with, with their, the point guard and they're getting, you know, hard trapped or, or very hard hedged, uh, and they have a short roll and there's a, a loaded up defense on the, uh, on the weak side, like have a small side of game where it's that exact circumstance. 
Uh, maybe the defense is, is moving around a little bit to, to get to that point so that there's a, you know, a continual read. Um, throwing in variance within that circumstance, um, that will develop feel. Um, but just explaining like, hey, if, if this guy's here, that guy's here, you make this pass or that pass. That isn't particularly helpful because otherwise, like, every coach in America would be like, okay, in press breaks, get the ball middle, and then you'd never have to teach it ever again. <laughs> and uh, every coach in America will be like, you can explain it as many times as you like. You can use sock puppets. Um, they're still not going to catch it, turn opposite, and, and throw an overhead pass it's just, because they still have to process it and understand that there are circumstances where they do that and there are circumstances where you kind of do the opposite and the only way to know is to do. Mm -hmm. um, so building uh, building small-sided games, whether it's you know one-on-twos, three-on-fours, four-on-threes, in that exact circumstance or the, the circumstance that's most common in your offense mm -hmm. um, is going to develop the feel for that moment. Um, if feel wasn't developable, if feel wasn't developable, um, the first pick in every uh, tryout would be the kid who's, you know, has understands how to do everything is the worst athlete. But it's often the opposite because basketball coaches think they can teach basketball thinking and basketball feel. It, mm -hmm. it, in fact, we often do the exact opposite. You know, that guy's at the end of the bench and uh, the guy who can make plays and, and can sort of uh, use his athleticism doesn't quite understand what's happening yet. Mm -hmm. or maybe he has like one skill and is still working on the rest of his game is often the first guy that, uh, that coaches pick. Mm -hmm. Let's move real quick to, you know, a, a theory, you know, in front office stuff, you know, the Larry Bird theory uh, about that, that you said that, you know, they want to draft guys that that are either like you or, or killed you, you know, during your playing career. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, this is this is something that uh, that I, I've just noticed casually and, and you'll find it in, in uh, you know, guys that. Uh, played at a high level um, where they they generally just like one of two dudes. They like guys that you know play just like them. Um, one of my coaches was a was a scorer. Um, they probably averaged thirty plus in high school and in college. And he always liked scores. Like he just didn't. If you played defense, like it was cool, but he, he didn't have a place in his heart. Um, and then I had another coach that was you know like a, an undersized point guard, um, really crafty. And all his favorite players were just like these big, strong point guards uh, that could beat everybody to spots because that gave him problems. Mm. And I just feel like with a, it's a, it's a small theory. Like it's obviously not enough to, to predict what people do, but just when watching uh, guys who played at a high level, um, they just seem they seem to find these two types of dudes, the ones that gave them all the problems in the world, and they just don't want a team like uh, they want to get a team that nobody wants to play, or they want a team of guys that play a lot like them. Mm. I want to read a quote uh, from from one of your pieces that I found because um, the the last line of it stumped me a little bit. Uh, a lot of big words in there, a lot of SAT words, my guy. So I said, uh, "Growth is not linear. Player development is not linear. It's always a confluence of factors. Different things affect different things differently. NBA teams keep hiring and firing analysts." consultants, research firms, and algorithms because there's so much to be known. The relationship between the crispness of sets and shot value or play calling optimization and expected value of shots during 10-0 runs because the info is buried in the tropisms of movement regarding relationships and tension. Concepts, big data has been trashed for. So my first question is that last part because the info is buried in the tropisms of movement regarding relationships and intention. Un unpack that for me. Okay. Yeah, I can I can make this this pretty simple. Um, a lot of what we know about basketball isn't observable mm. um, when you look at stats. Um, it's, it's like you know when you go to the Y with like your older brother or cousin or whatever, and some old guy gets a layup and he goes, "That's because he cut really well." 
he he rubbed his guy right like he's faked one way he planted his foot and he cut the other way he got you know he got the ball right off the ucla cut yep um that's tropism movement just means like you know how people move in a general direction um and those things they're never they're not alone it's not that if you come off you know ucla cuts well you score it's that again another coach thing we come off it's because we come off cuts well the defense has to react and that defense helping over to chuck the cutter is what allows us to hit the skip past the opposite side mm-hmm. relationships and tension because a person cut off the ball hard the defense had to react and then we get a skip pass Getting one of those things on their own isn't particularly valuable but it's the intersection of those things that are and when you give big data a lot of those things when you just feed it you know how did you get a three on this possession it's not going to answer it because it doesn't know that so you have to use analytics, larger data within a set, but you also have to, there is a value to be gained from, from the big data, mm-hmm. but you also have to recognize its limits. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of a follow-up question to that, you know, I, I hate finger rolls that, that don't use the backboard. That's just something that I can't stand. I also hate, I think I tweeted it last night, Caleb loved it, both of them. He came across the, the paint to do a, a floater, which I can't stand um, because it's really hard to adjust and make that shot. And then he also faded away on the layup attempt. Um, I, I can't stand either one of those things, but I can't really mathematically prove it. At least, you know, I don't have access to the advanced stats like that. So what, what do you need to see to put the data down when it comes to scoring and facilitating potential? So uh, I'm with you on the, the wrong way floater and, and wrong way layup. Uh, point guards love it. I don't know why. It's- I mean, I, I'm a point guard and uh, it's just, it's one of the things that uh, uh, I've labeled it pissing into the wind. Um <laughs> Because sometimes it works, but oftentimes it's messy. Um, You're also not in position for the rebound. All right, sorry. Yeah. Oh, I mean, like <laughs> it, it, again, when it, when it looks, when it works, it it seems great. It's totally yeah. worth it. Um, a lot of times it's just not. Um, yeah. I think that stats are not granular enough, and tracking data is not granular enough. That if you said, "Can you show me all of the you know the the, the wrong way layups um, where a person is feeding uh, historically like?" In public data, you're probably not going to be able to get that. Mm. But what you can do is find, you know, attempt, uh, find people who have uh, really good floaters but are bad at the rim, but they seem to make a lot of shots and say, like, mm. you could be this much better if you didn't take this shot. Mm. And find that, like, there are people who are suddenly bad at the rim because mm. it's, it's cataloged in Synergy or, or whatever tracking, semi-tracking service that you're using. Mm. Um, as a shot at the rim because it's in that like two to four foot range that scares coaches a lot because it's not a layup but it's not a floater <laughs> um and nobody know, really knows how to rebound them at a, at a high school or like college level to be honest yep um it's saying like okay you might find you can probably find in the data and be like i have you down for all of these layups these are the layups you took this high school season but this two to four foot range where you gotta get weird and crafty is actually bad so i think that it is um it is good to recognize where the data is because it's not going to tell you like, yeah, this is actually a you know 37% shot, which is a 3% worse than, you know, expected value for layups, mm-hmm. but you can use what, you know, somewhat limited things are public data mm-hmm. and work backwards from there and say, you know, good finishers are here. You're here. This is a shot we think is bad. You're, mm-hmm. you know, 5% worse than uh, what this, these 10 division one guards were. If you want to be a division guard, you have to shoot better around the rim. We don't think this shot is good. Fix it. Got you. Real quick, so we're gonna get to to shooting in a second and some some concepts with that. But I wanted to to have you talk about <clears throat> your uh, your dunking rule with your players because I, I was telling you a story about uh, one of uh, one of our guys that 
you know, freshman year, he was, he was an imaginary dunker. It was barely get the ball over the rim and, you know, it would kill fast breaks. Um, and so I, I stopped practice one day and, uh, made him prove that he could dunk it and he did, did not do that. Uh, thankfully he developed and, you know, that's a big part of his game now, but, but talk about your rule. So, I think yeah, so um, I'm, I'm a little bit of a nervous person. Um, and so, uh, came up with a, a way of, of solving that when, when there's suspect kids on a fast break. Um, so the, the way that we talk about it is that the, you, every kid has three dunks, three levels of dunking. The first one is the first time you get a dunk. It should be celebrated. It's great. Uh, that's one of the greatest feelings in the entire world. The first time you put one down. Second time is that you, you get one in a game. Again, feels amazing. There's video proof. Usually like you're in a good place for me. You're a dunker after the third one, which is when you can make 10 dunks in a row on command. Now, this might sound a little bit harsh. If you are a person who can't get 10 dunks in a row. Because once you can, you, you will never have those worries again. Like as a coach or, or even like a teammate. Once you've seen somebody put 10 down in a row, you know they can do it. Because that 8, 9, 10 are tough on the legs. Mm. Um, and, you know, every time we introduce this to, to our guys or, or to kids or, you know, when I explain this, the kids who can't dunk hate it. They're like, that's, that's, that's awful. But the, once the second the second a kid gets that tenth dunk down, they are gatekeeping like crazy. You're not a real dunker. You can't even get ten in a row. And there's a, there is a level of confidence that you get once you put that tenth one down. And uh, to me, it separates guys who can do it with game legs. Because a lot of times it's like when you're fresh, you throw one off the uh, throw that throw one up high, it bounces perfect. You can put it down. But when you can do it with game legs, with everybody watching, understand there's a uh, the, you know there's some there's some clout to be gained or lost if you can't can't get this done. Mm-hmm. To me, it's an effective barometer of of guys, especially younger guys in that space. Hmm. To shooting, I, I heard a cool quote from Amber Nichols, kind of a, a concept for evaluating shooting that I hadn't really heard of before. Maybe it's popular, and I'm just I'm just I just missed the boat. But uh, she said on Nate Duncan's podcast that she watches a player's misses when she's evaluating shooted. Uh, shooting weighted almost as much as the actual numbers themselves. So, you know, how are they missing the shot? Is it, is it really bad? Is it hitting the side of the backboard? Is it, you know, very short? Is it long? Um, or is it, you know, are these close misses, is it rimming in and out, um, you know, just hits, you know, the, the wrong side. Is that something you've heard? Do you put any, put do you, do you agree with that at all or no? Yeah. Um, that's, that's sort of how I evaluate people the first time I'm seeing them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, the way that their misses look and how similar they are. Gotcha. Um, so I am not um, like a super shooting traditionalist. Um, <laughs> I, I think that there are a lot of different things you can do within shooting um, to, to get to a good jumper. Um, yep. And I, I think that it, in a lot of ways, it can be more difficult to force kids who are pretty good shooters into like a specific shooting framework because it can cause them to be not great shooters. Um, just because they're trying to do something that's extremely uncomfortable for them, just because you believe it to be the best way to shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that I'm looking for from from college and pro shooters is that their shot looks the same every time. So no different spin. Um, if they miss, it's sort of on the same general trajectory. Um, is their follow through in the same spot? Is their release at the same spot? Do they jump the same height every time? If they're if they're a guy who really like jumps when he shoots, does that jump look the same in the first quarter as it does in the fourth quarter? Um, so a lot of times that tells me how a player misses tells me what the, like what the most fragile component to their jumper is, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's, you know, how their guide hand places, 
um, you know, if they're a thumber, if they don't have enough risk torque, if they shoot with their shoulder only, if they don't use their legs, their misses can be a cue towards the easiest or what I would call lowest hanging fruit on their shot, where if you fix this, they're actually a much better shooter and it's usually pretty easy to do. Okay. Gotcha. And kind of based off of that, um, you, you when, when we were talking about this uh, the other day, you, you mentioned that, you know, when you're fixing someone's jump shot, A, uh, it has to be in a, in a non-competitive state space. You know, you need three weeks out of season, um, which which as a coach I can appreciate. But um, also, you rebuild the legs first. Can you can you talk about you know that what that process looks like for you? Um, and if like when you say rebuild the legs, is that more foot placement? You know, like the one two step versus you know a hop. You know, what, what are you going for there? Yeah. Um, so I mean, I think the first thing is, is understanding like shooting involves a lot of misses and a lot involves a lot of uncomfortable misses and through i think it's like it's obviously three weeks is can be difficult to fit into people's schedules especially if they're um a year-round person who who plays uh you know uh, aau in front of uh in front of college coaches it can be really hard to find to find something yep but like you the worst thing that can happen when you're rebuilding somebody's jumper is they could sound failed too early mm-hmm. and then they attach to you know maybe they shoot eight jumpers in a game halfway through a rebuild and now they're going to be jaded because maybe one of those went in and now you know now you're dealing with the you know the psychic idea that like this isn't a great rebuild where if they had just waited another week maybe a couple more go in because you know now we're shooting this way or we shoot the other way mm-hmm. um the other reason is that you just you want to allow people to experiment in a place where they're not going to be punished for it. So um, I've definitely made adjustments to people's jumpers. And then like two weeks later, we came back and like, okay, uh, actually let's shoot off this finger because it's a little bit easier for you. Gotcha. Um, where if it had been a, environment, a competitive pressurized environment, you know, maybe there was a college coach of that game and, you know, suddenly maybe, you know, you know how fickle these things can be. Yeah. If you go three for eight instead of four for eight, they may not think you're that good of a shooter. The world can turn on on those little things. Um, the reason I change the legs first when when shooting um, is that it's a thing that is pretty universal. Um, you know, when you're when you're doing training with with high school or or college guys um, or with your own guys, like there's other people involved in the process. So you know, if you're if you're working with somebody who has a high school coach who believes in a certain way of shooting, you can generally change the legs, and there's not going to be that much of an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, having that communication space between. Um, you know, AAU, high school, college, um, and, you know, the kid and, and you uh, allows for, for the best way of doing this. Um, I te- I'm a believer in hop shooting personally, mm. but if a person's rhythm is more comfortable, one, two, it's one, two. Mm. Um, uh, once there is a dominant um, and consistent form in terms of feet, we can start to experiment out of, you know, into different ways of doing it. So, like, there's going to be pin downs where hops are difficult. So we spend 5% of our shooting time on, on one twos out of those pin downs. Having different footworks is important. Um, that's a lot of thing. Uh, that's something that watching NBA shooting coaches um, comes out quite a bit is just having that versatility yep. um, within, within footwork patterns um, for high schoolers, just generally getting them to do the same thing every time. And if you can get them there then build, um, but teaching multiple forward patterns can be difficult um, for, you know, a sophomore in high school. Uh, I generally teach uh, a tilt rather than uh, feet to the rim. I think it makes more biomechanic sense to to have your shoulder and hand pointed to the rim rather than ten toes and have it be pointed soft, uh, slightly off. It allows you know the elbow, uh, the shoulder, and the fingertips to be in a direct alignment to the rim. Um, 
the most important thing is, for me is, is generating power out of the posterior chain. So that's uh, lower back, uh, butt, uh, thighs, and then down to the calves. Um, a lot of times this just involves a lot of stretching, a lot of uh, varied footwork patterns to get into shooting. Um, we, we were talking uh, before this, and uh, Chip England's videos are really hard to find. Like every every coach can kind of, um, you know, can can understand the googling chimp chip england and going to youtube and finding nothing and like this guy's the greatest shooting coach but i can't find a single thing and um maybe that's why <laughs> yeah and it's like well maybe that's why and um i became a philadelphia 76ers fan for about uh like a year and a half because they were so crazy that they uh crazy is the wrong word they were so passionate about joel Embiid that they recorded every second that he was on the floor and he used to have like a 20 minute overlap uh, when he was, this is, would have been the back injury. No, this would have been the, the second foot injury um, where he was out for 20 minutes when the fans were just let into the arena and he, and the shooting coach that they had was a chip Anglin disciple. And because the fans wanted to see Joe so bad, they would videotape it. And so like every two days, there would be a 20 minute video of chip Anglin's like, you know, uh, chip Anglin's tree shooting done by a seven footer. And I watched every single one of those. Cause it was the most ex, uh, exposure I'd ever had to like actual chip angle and drills. I mean, everybody has drills. They will show to, um, will show to, you know, clinics or whatever, but just to see like the raw forms and see people experiment, um, chip stuff is, is around now. Um, you have like Dan Craig in, in Miami who, who has some, some similar things. Um, now that the brain drain has kind of gone out of San, uh, San Antonio, a lot of the like, the warrior shooting coaches um, will use elements of it, mm-hmm. but to to see people do very footwork shooting and, and to try to get people to getting your players to um, build footwork patterns into shooting. So like whether it's a lunge, then quickly going into a hop, you know, a sidestep into a hop. You might not even necessarily have the ball in your hands or do a dribble into it, but just making uncomfortable patterns into your jumper with good footwork with good balance does a ton of work um i don't think form shooting you know the hold the ball in your hand up to the shoulder slow like i don't think that really works mm-hmm. because the second that you have to give some motion to it or the second that you have to uh, you know spin around or, or go around a screen or do a crossover like that stuff falls apart um so by starting with with these leg combinations and starting with them self-organization principles it builds a baseline so that whatever happens whatever happens on top in time will get fixed but they will be on balance they'll get into the same legs every single time they will have a defined footwork pattern and that's a lot of the work for you know a 16 17 18 19 year old jumper yep absolutely let's talk about the uh, college and you know recruiting and just talking about fit so uh you mentioned something the other day about you know recruiting the local kids can actually be a bad thing uh, for, for a college program. Talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I think it can be a fantastic thing when it works. Mm-hmm. Um, like LMU has, has, uh, when it grows up, did it on the, on, on local kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did it on kids who, you know, went to USC and it didn't work out. Um, it can be a dangerous thing for coaches, um, because there's nothing a booster hates to see more than a kid who averaged 35 points a game at a local high school sitting on the bench behind a national kid <laughs> and the team is losing. Yeah. That's a different type of sting. Um, for players, it can be it can be difficult to um, go through the struggles involved in college um, in front of the same people who've watched you only succeed. Uh, because college is an extremely different environment with extremely different pressures. 
um, and being surrounded by the same people that helped you succeed in college may not be adequately prepared for the person that you need to be in college. Um, it's not to say that everybody has circle has bad things. It's just that with a change in environment, you may also need, you know, a, a new fresh set of advice. So to have two sets of mentors rather than one, um, I think that it generally like college coaches, especially at like power five levels tend to avoid it. Like there's not, you know, a roster of full Atlanta dudes on, on Georgia. Um, St. John's isn't, you know, uh, 12 New York city guys. Um, and that's because like it, you can lose your job if you, if you take the wrong Boku kids in the way to like, if, if a kid from LA doesn't work out, um, you know, at, at university of Miami, like there's not a local backlash to that. He can transfer somewhere else and, and he can, you know, he can work out. But if you're, if the guy who, who started the local high school, you know, struggles in at the college, I mean, Penny Hardaway seems to be learning this lesson. Um, there can be some issues. So I think that everybody has sort of backed away from this really romantic idea and sort of been like when the fits right, but, for everyone involved, it doesn't seem to be as, as uh, easy as, as you know, it seems. Talk about how society overrates level and conference, uh, you know, when, when high school kids are, are picking a program to, to advance themselves at the collegiate level. What, what players, what should players be looking for in a program? Okay. Um, yeah, I'm going to need like, uh, like if you're a, a low major uh, college coach, like maybe, maybe just like mute this for about two minutes. Um, <laughs> The only day that, like, if you're like, if you are being recruited by, like, say, like a Ken Palm, like, bottom, you know, like the lot, the bottom thirty teams in uh, Division One, mm-hmm. and you're also being recruited by like the top five teams in Division Two. Um, the only day that I would generally say that um, going to those Division One schools rather than those Division Two schools is signing day, mm-hmm. um, because. If you are the level of player who can get there, you're really used to winning. And um, you're really used to uh, a culture of, of success. Um, and those low major division one jobs um, are rebuilding jobs. And not everybody is necessarily um, wired to rebuild a program on their back. Mm-hmm. It is also difficult if you are a, uh, if you are a guy who wants to be a pro, um, the tape that you're going to get at D2 is most likely better. Setting aside the like transferring up idea or, or anything like that, like at division two, you will have tape of you killing. And uh, the difference between D1 and D2 is not so stark that, you know, nine points a game for a, you know, a, a very losing division one program is not better to, you know, scouts in, in uh, Venezuela or Spain or Portugal, Germany than 26 points a game at a division two is and winning. Um, so I think that it can always be difficult to, to say, I'm not a division one athlete, mm-hmm. um, but this is a race. This isn't a race, it's a marathon. So a lot of the guys who go to those, you know, low major division ones do have struggles because uh, maybe the facilities aren't the same as the division two. Not to say that, you know, it's it's a wonderful feeling to be a division one athlete, but sometimes the fit, not just in terms of basketball, but in terms of understanding the campus, understanding um, understanding the coaching staff, uh, understanding how you're wired and what the things that are non-negotiable for you are, mm-hmm. um, might be better division two. Um, so I, those are generally my favorite type of guys. Um, uh, the, the guys who are just on the edge of that division one, division two. Um, I generally say that, uh, I would much rather go to a division two and have my name, uh, on the leaderboard than go to a division one 
and uh, feel like I added 10 wins. <laughs> or just be, you know, uh, the, the 12th guy on, you know, a, a, a solid team. It's all about experience, but you also just have to project, you know, how soon you're going to be able to play, whether that's, you know, sometimes if, if parents and kids are honest with each other, you know, it's really not until junior year or sophomore year um, that, that you're ready to go, especially if there are guys ahead of you. Um, let's talk, speaking of fit, um, you and a whole whole lot of people on Twitter uh, are not a big fan of, of the, the fit and the offensive flow of my favorite team, North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, talk about what you would do, uh, what offensive system, uh, you would put in place and what actions you'd like to run uh, with UNC and then also what rotations you would like to see given their current roster. Oh, you didn't tell me this was going to be five hours. Um, <laughs> I think that the, the primary and secondary break makes sense. Like, I think that it works. Um, I think that like Roy Williams is a fantastic coach, but the, to me, when I watched North Carolina, it seems that the worst shot that North Carolina can take is the one in between secondary offense and you know, the, the flow offense. Mm. Um, and a lot of times, like, there's fine shots to be available there, but if it's not primary or secondary break where he wants to run the motion all the way through to find the best shot, mm. uh, which is which is a fine mentality. Um, I don't necessarily think that he has the roster to continue to play two bigs. Yep. Um, he has struggled to recruit shooting um, historically uh, in the past, like, five years, I'd say. Um, oh, granted, the, the recruiting class that he brought in um, with Walker with, you know, like there's a focus on shooting from five different positions. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to see uh, a floor that represents that. Um, it, there's not really a great usage in having a, a center who can who can shoot from the volleyball line mm-hmm. um, if they're setting a cross screen for another big. Mm-hmm. That, that shooting gravity doesn't affect that way. Um, I think that a modernization of, of the implications of shooting gravity. It would be like the biggest thing I would want out of Roy. So like the, the actions and the concepts work, but the spacing that flows in and out of them is the larger problem. So mm-hmm. you can you can take screen caps of Carolina games and see three or four guys in the paint on a possession. And Jake in the paint, I'm looking at you. <laughs> yeah. And uh and the issue is uh is that they're not just that's not just one you know out of context screen cap it's that they came two of those guys were on the high post or one was in the high post one was the low post one you know is walking down from you know the top of the key and the other one is walking in from the slot where if you had, every one of them had been outside their point line they come in for that one moment and then they keep moving um it would enable the point guards to uh to work properly and, and work with a floor that uh does them favors um, the, the Carolina offense is one that is very kind to to bigs and wings um, in terms of their usage and in terms of their focus of the offense. Um, finding a way to leverage wing playmaking, which again has been the um, recruiting flaw of the of the, the Roy Williams here since the the real one and done kick up has started, um, is finding these uh, you know playmaking threes and fours. Um, it's one that is a system that you know uh, Duke and, and Kentucky and, and the general blue bloods have have adapted to, but it seems to be something Roy is holding out on. Mm. Um, as far as the jumbo guard that's initiating in addition to scoring. Yeah. I mean, and I don't think that they have to, you know, they don't have to have the ball for 20 seconds. Yeah. But having a slot pick and roll, you know, you might have your, the traditional North Carolina secondary break and then it flows into a jumbo guard pick and roll mm-hmm. or, you know, it flows into a five, three pick and roll where, you know, your big is running the pick and roll, but it's a pop for your jumbo guard who then gets to attack. 
um, these are things that can be done. And I think that they're like, they will hopefully be done in, in the next year or so. Um, this class that they brought in um, is, is a multi-year um, is a multi-year class. So they're going to have time to, to make adjustments within it. Um, I would like to see, you know, Roy bring in uh, a, a challenging offensive um, coordinator, somebody who's willing to, to modernize these concepts and maybe do things that aren't comfortable for Roy Williams in terms of the locations of his, of his guards uh, or, you know, the, how much usage his, his wings can have other than spot up responsibility. Yep. Let's move real quick to one of one of the, I mean your favorite fit um, in in this year's college class. Yeah, uh, you know, it's actually a guy who would have uh, really solved some of the problems we just talked about, <laughs> um, and almost did, but instead chose to go to Stanford. That'd be Zaire Williams. Um, you really couldn't pick a, a better fit for for Zaire. Um, you know, six eight, six nine, uh, shooting forward. Um, has ball handling skills, but they're not necessarily like you don't want him, you know, running one four flat like he couldn't do James Harden things with his handle right now. And he's also skinny. What do you do to combat that? You know, you have when you have a sweet shooting, uh, you know, forward size player, you put them in a heavy motion offense. So the defenses can't gear up. So when they do get drives, they're much more clouded by the motion offenses that you come through, whether it's through flares, through zipper movements, uh, through like shovel actions. Uh, you have so many routes to to deceive a defense, they can never gear up to challenge physically Zaire. Um, so to me, he's in a circumstance where he gets to experiment as a player. You know, he's in a in a place where he meets the qualifications, and now he can start to add a little more to his game as he understands the defenses as his body matures. Um, and I think the fit for guys like him is to find a place where you can grow your game, not just do the thing they ask you to, but to have a mind towards the pros of being like, okay, so I'm going to need to shoot off the dribble. Is this a place that, you know, if I can knock down open shots and I can knock down movement shots, do well, I get off the dribble shots. And Stanford has been more than willing to let him do that and to let their guards do that historically. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's a great fit for what his strengths are, but it's also a great fit for hiding and then exploring his weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, they get a lot, up a lot of threes, super efficient, uh, too, especially last year with Tyrell Terry. Let's talk about the draft. Um, you know, your, your writing style is long form. Uh, I saw you say that you wrote 723 pages on this year's draft class, which had to be kind of de depressing at some points. Uh, just um, yeah, I mean, uh, there was a point where I, like, didn't know if it was going to end. I think the draft got pushed, like, twice. I'm <laughs> there, like, the draft is this day. And I think I just tweeted, no, it's not. <laughs> um, because I thought that I was just going to have to like keep going down and down the list. I think that I covered basically everybody I wanted to. I got the Lamelo Ball piece done the day of the draft. Yeah. Um, but I got to everybody that I was really, really interested in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not just with writing, but with you know talking about it on podcasts and and, and talking about it with uh, with with scouts and stuff. Um, this was the yeah, the uh, draft class. I would never like to do that level again in terms of um, it being that long. Uh, yeah, I didn't spend more time with, uh, <laughs> with, the, with James Wiseman. <laughs> Talk real quick about um, the the minutia that goes into evaluating. Um, we'll go through three different ones real quick, but but a shooter. You know, talk about some of the things you're looking for in game film uh, to to show whether or not they're going to be successful at that at the next level. Yeah, so I mean, with with college, the first thing. The first thing that I do when I start these breakdowns is I find, you know, copies of all the games and then I go find every stat I could find. So if I, with, you know, with top prospects, it's really easy because I can go high school, um, 
circuit games, uh, international games that they played them in college. So rather than saying like, okay, they took, they played 30 games. I'm suddenly looking at a sample of, you know, 100, 120, 150, um, which allows me to see broader trends. Um, you know, if they're a guy who struggled to shoot as, as a sophomore in high school, and then by the time they're a freshman in college, there's a lot better. It's like, oh, the, his strength level helped his shooting. You know, his free throw rate was the same and his free throw um, percentage was the same, but, you know, shooting threes obviously gets better as you get stronger. Um, yep. So the first thing I do is just try to look at the broad um, stats and, and see what what I think the flaws are going to be going in. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time watching basketball and watching stats around basketball. So, like, I can kind of look at broad shooting stats and be like, okay, I think that he's going to have these problems. You know, Synergy does a, a great job of, of breaking down shot profiles. So, you know, if they take 60% of their shots off the dribble, it's like, okay, what's going on here that he has to shoot this many off the dribble threes? Yep. Um when I'm watching a guy, the first thing that I look for is does everything look the same? Um, you'll find with like mediocre shooters that their misses look dramatically different than their makes. Um, my ideal shooter is one that doesn't recognize that they've missed. Um, like Clay Thompson is probably the best wired shooter you'll ever see. It's not just the form, like his wiring on his shots. I don't think he notices when he misses. Yeah. It just doesn't like it. It cannot bother him. Yeah. Like, I mean, the, the most that I've ever seen Clay like truly get bothered is when he went on that like crazy miss streak. And then he like got absolutely flamethrower hot and started shouting, I missed you to his hand. Like, that's the most <laughs> actually bothered. But when you see like mediocre, especially like, like like potential shooters in high school, they'll miss like five threes and be upset. Mm. It's like, well, I mean, one, you know, basketball is a failure sport. Like you're, if you, if misses bother you, like it's going to be really hard to be a professional shooter. Yeah. But you know, you can just see how guys are wired because you need that to succeed in the pros. You need to be wired a certain way. Um, and that eliminates streakiness. It eliminates um, making, you know, the math about you. Just being like, if you shoot your jumper and you're a good shooter, it shouldn't matter. Um, so I'm looking for wiring and I'm looking for, does everything look the same? Um, and then once you, you know, once you've actually looked at the shots, just, um, how do you get them? Are you a guy who can only shoot off movement? Um, are you a guy who um, takes a lot of stuff off the dribble and is a better shooter than the stats would say, just because they take, you know, really tough shots all the time. If they're taking tough shots all the time, is that because they are wired to take tough shots? Do they just like the challenge or do they need to take tough shots to be good? And like one of those is totally fixable. If a guy just likes to take weird stuff, you could probably coach him out of that. If a guy can't get the level of, uh, of separation that to his good games and his bad games are just whether he makes a double clutched 17 footer over two people, <laughs> uh, that may not be, that's probably not a guy I'm interested in because he can't get easy looks. Whenever I'm evaluating a prospect, the first thing I ask is, what can you do on an NBA floor simply? Can you get to the rim? Easy. Can you knock down jumpers? Easy. Can you defend multiple positions? Easy. And that's sort of the evaluation is, is finding the thing that's done simplest. Talk about the same thing for, for a defender, defending. Yeah. So with defense, it starts with scheme. Um, so if there's a scheme I'm not necessarily familiar with, um, I'll start with, uh, this is usually college though with high school, I could, you can probably do the same for, for the, the high level programs is I understand exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, I think that a lot of, uh, people who are casually into the draft, which is a fun thing to be into may not understand the schematic specifics of what the coach is asking for. Mm-hmm. So if you were just dropped into the draft and watched like a Texas tech game, you'd be like, wow, he's really pushing it. He's letting people get baselines. Like, no, that's the goal. Like you're not no middle ever. Baseline is totally fine. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so whenever I'm evaluating defender, I try to make sure I have the tension of the defense down. So I know like there's mistakes that always like have, like that are always there. You know, if you switch your feet and allow uh, you allow somebody to get to their dominant hand, things like that, those are just universal. But the, the specifics of what the coaches are asking for allow me to understand what their schematic defensive responsibilities are. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm looking for is who gives them trouble um, and how rare is that guy? Uh, Giannis is hard to guard. Almost nobody can do it. Um, so if you struggle with Giannis, that's fine. But if like five, 10 dudes are like giving you work, there's a lot of those guys. Um, you can find them extremely easily. So figuring out, you know, where can a, where can a guy get hit? What is he, what are his struggles? And then how necessary is his strengths and how hideable is his weaknesses? Um, if you have a guy who's a great rotation defender, just, uh, we'll say Tyler, Tyrese Albert, phenomenal mm-hmm. rotation defender, just so good at it. He can't guard powerful people on ball. Mm. Luckily, we have an NBA where there's a bunch of six six strong dudes. We can put him off ball and guard twos, the, the weakest position in the league, mm. where he won't have to, you know, not be quick. He doesn't have to challenge ones because in, in Sacramento specifically, De'Aaron can do that. Mm. And two is a, a generally a softer position. And when it comes to wings, you can find a wing because there's a lot of guys who um, uh, want to make this auto porter junior money and are, are committed to sliding their feet and working on their body. Um <laughs> So recognizing what the scheme is, recognizing what their strengths are and how uh, valuable their strengths are and how coverable their weaknesses are, are generally what I'm looking for, for, for perimeter defenders. Okay. Got you. Talk about the minutia. I'm going to throw you a curveball that goes into uh, pick and rolls, you know, coverage uh, defensively, and then also offensively, how, how efficiently they're able to use them. Yeah. So, um, I'll, I'll say with, I'll start with bigs on, on defense. So I have a, a series that I did, um, on, on pick and roll defense and bigs, uh, it's called slow feet, don't eat. And it, uh, it takes the eight major pick and roll coverages and then, uh, breaks for each of the eight prospects that I did breaks down their tape for each one of the coverages. So I think it's soft hedge, hard hedge, uh, drop ice blitz straight switch. And then like with a little soft switch, if they're you know not a straight switch guy, mm-hmm. um, the first thing is that you can identify how early they identify their coverage. In college, there's a lot of you know teams that are multiple in coverage. If the pick and roll is in the slot, we're in this. The pick and roll rolls in the slot, and it's this guy worth this. The pick and roll is in the middle, we're in that. Um, once you watch three or four games, you generally know what a team is going to do on every single ball screen. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to see them declare their coverage early. You want to make sure that they are not making a coverage mistake. So if you're in ice and you let people middle, that's always a big problem. Because the one rule is like, well, we can live with literally anything. You just can't let anybody middle ever. <laughs> if, if what happens is that you know the, the side pick and roll happens and the big slide switches his feet and the bar, guard you know is able to snake it back middle or cross back middle and, and get even like a an okay looking floater like that's a mess. Um, so you know again recognizing scheme, recognizing what they're being taught, and then just trying imagining from a uh, a if you were to teach it to somebody, would you show them this? Mm. Um, and then the last thing is physical limitations. So, like, I watched uh, Obi Toppin for this series. I'm like, Obi Toppin can't jump while backpedaling. He's just, he's not, he needs to load. Um, he needs to load up to jump explosively. He's extremely explosive when he has loading time. I mean, when when he has time to load for an alley, we can you know, touch the square. But when he's backpedaling, he's not particularly athletic. So, teams that put him in drop are going to always have to send an extra defender over top because he can't take away that lob threat at a high level. 
So when you recognize that that limitation, and again, when you're in drop, there is no help over top. For the most part, most teams put that big on an island. And you have to be able to hedge between the uh, the guard driving and the lob over top at the same time um, while the shooters gap, or while the, the help side defenders gap for shooters uh, trying to get a deflection. That's a, that's a huge physical toll. And if your big can't do that, you probably can't play that coverage. Um, for for ball handlers in pick and roll, um, it's it's sort of the inverse. Um, you need to a recognize what coverage, right? Um, if teams are hedging you, and you don't recognize that you can split it, obviously there's a there's a problem. Um, if teams are icing, and you don't have a way of of getting middle, um, or if you're settling for baseline jumpers in ice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's the inverse problem in that you need to be asking questions as a ball handler that defenses are extremely uncomfortable with. The process has to be correct. And the process is like teams will always give you stuff and bad ball handlers think that they're doing a good job because they got a shot up, but good ball handlers are capable of making a defense uncomfortable within their coverage. And, you know, a, that's what separates guys who are pros and guys who aren't is the guys who are pros in the long term consistently ask those questions because as you get to higher and higher levels, whether it's the NBA, whether it's, you know, uh, being on a contending team, in the NBA, being on a playoff team, in the NBA, and then succeeding in the playoffs, like at each one of those, every little mistake hurts you more. Mm. And if you're a guy who can't make specific coverages paid as you get to a higher and higher levels, they'll just only give you that coverage. That's how we see guys who um, like can't shoot, but also can't beat like double under coverage where the big and the guard both go under and just say like, shoot it, see what happens. Mm-hmm. If you can't beat that and you don't have counters to make that defense uncomfortable, you can. There doesn't matter how athletic you are, because they can just do it without having to worry. Got you. Sorry, is that you got something else? No, that's it. Okay, so when it comes to the draft, NBA GMs need to stop doing blank, and they need to start doing blank. Um, when it comes to the draft, NBA teams need to uh, stop picking scared. Um, I'm a firm believer that, um, like the, I, that like, if you pick a guy fourth or if you pick him seventh, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. It'd be ideal to like trade down and get as many picks as possible. But like, if you're good at the draft, like the relative value, obviously, like if you have, you know, if you know a guy's going to be super good and you get him at 60, like do that because then you can get even more good players. Um, but Worrying about these like minor differences, like I, if I were a team, I would have picked Patrick Williams first. Mm. That was that was my evaluation on Patrick Williams. Mm. Um, does that mean if I had him, you know, if I if he was available at four, I would have taken him absolutely. But like when Bush comes to shove, that was my evaluation on, on how good Pat could be. Mm. Um, what like trusting your evaluation and being willing to take swings because if you're right, like the difference between taking him first and fourth, it's most likely that like. If you take him first, you're more likely to get fired if you're wrong mm. than you are at fourth. Like it, it probably just it, hurt, it stings a little bit more. Yep. Um, but that's about it. Because if you're right, like is somebody gonna be like, well, I mean, yeah, he was a Hall of Famer, but he got picked fourth. Like, I mean, I mean, it, it, it doesn't fundamentally matter if you pick him first and he turns out to be great. If you pick him fourth, and he turns out to be great. Like, yeah. The distance makes all of those uh, the horse racing element of the draft pretty relevant. <laughs> um, so, I mean, like, well, I disagree with taking uh, Jalen Stakesmith at 10. Yep. I do appreciate that James Jones is like, I got guys, I evaluated, that's what we're doing. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, as a, as a Cavs fan, uh, watching them pick Okoro instead of Okongwu uh, made me sad. Um, should I be I love playing? Isaac Okoro? I love Isaac Okoro over Okongwu. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, as a West in, Coast guy, I was surprised. I, I mean, uh, I think it's it's not at that point. It's about fit uh, yeah. and asset allocation. I don't think you can chase um, all of the bigs they currently have with another big. Without, like if you're if you are picking Okongwu, you have to basically get off everybody that's currently there. Yeah, um, which yeah. is like it's fine if you're willing to commit to that, but that doesn't seem like the process that they're in. Um, <laughs> what process are they in? <laughs> yeah, that's that leads to the second part. Um, I would, I mean, with Okoro, you get a guy who solves one of the biggest problems is that uh, he plays defense and he wins basketball games. Those are the two things he's basically guaranteed to do. Um, I think the shooting concern is overblown if you're willing to you know, use him as a four and short roll him and, and leverage his passing. Um, if you're using him as a floor spacer and sort of uh, not willing to be creative schematically within his limitations, there's going to be problems. Like lineups with two bigs and him at the three are not going to turn out great. Um, him but, them, like because they don't have you know like a, a, a crazy good playmaker too. Both of their guards are scoring guards, so I don't, I don't think it's a terrible. Um, yeah, I, I still think Kevin Porter Jr. is the best prospect on the Cavs. So, um, you know what? I don't know if I would agree, but that's not a crazy take to me. No, I mean, but again, the way that I perceive value is that like wing. If if you have a choice between wing and X, and X doesn't do like something at an All NBA level, you generally just take the wing. Mm. All things being equal, you take the wing. Um, so yeah, uh, free Kevin Porter, and uh, you're trying to give him the keys and put a Congo next to him and just or put a car next to him and let's just have some fun. He kind of um, KPG kind of reminds me of KPJ rather. He reminds me of uh, a little bit of um, he just got traded from the Suns. What's his name? Kelly Oubre. In terms of like uh, how they kick it, or in, in terms of like their the the handle weirdness. Long, yeah, that and just kind of their their long term fit. You know, they're just a, a scorer, just a bucket guy off the bench. And I don't know if there's anything else that they're gonna be, but I'm fine with them being just that. Yeah, I, I just think that uh, that KPJ has a like his ability to like make things happen is a, a different tier than Kelly's. Interesting. Like Kelly Kelly isn't going to be able to like shimmy to manipulate a big and then hit across to to get up to a screen. Hmm. I think that. KBJ has a higher ceiling, but Kelly being an off-ball guy stabilizes his value because you can always just like get him to to slash and attack the rim. Yep. Or like KPJ kind of needs to be on ball yep. to, to make the best version of him happen. So there's some difficulty. Um again, the Cavs are in sort of a precarious but fascinating situation. <laughs> they have all the contracts to do something. It's just they haven't done anything. I don't I don't understand it. Anyways, so uh favorite fit in the NBA draft, and let's go real quick to the next one after that. Uh, Desmond Bain to the Grizzlies. Love it. Um, yeah. Uh, he's built like a linebacker. Um, he's the best shooter in college last year. He's the best shooter in this draft. He's more than the best shooter in college last year. Um, extreme versatility. Um, he's going to be able to provide like a different type of uh, defense communication. He might be one of the better passers in this draft as well. Um, if you're sort of thinking of a guy you want to pair with jaw, this is about as good of a, an off guard as you could find. Um, he doesn't have, you know, insane measurables. Um, you know, if he had three more inches of wingspan or was a couple inches taller, he's, you know, easily going in the lottery. I think yeah. the value play for him being in the lottery still makes a lot of sense to me, but this is the sort of pick that you want to raise the ceiling of 
and the floor of, of a potential playoff team. So yeah. it's not just that you got a guy like this at 30, but you got the guy who fits best for your team and for the vision of your team, both today and the version that makes the playoffs at 30. Yeah, my friend is a Dallas Mavericks fan, and so he was praying for him. And one pick right before just just got snakes. So, uh, what's the what player is going to come out of this draft that's going to make teams regret not drafting him? You know, a la Isaiah Thomas, you know, Draymond. Uh, I'd say Tyrese Maxey uh, at twenty-one to Philly. Love it. Um, Maxey uh, is one of the guys that if you only look at college stats, you probably like oh he got drafted in the twenties. Um, but when you look at his historical stats, um, you know, his, his high school in his AAU, mm-hmm. um, you look at the, the shooting percentage at Kentucky, like that was, you know, a small number of games that he's played. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a guy who can really, really, really provide value um, for for the Sixers. He fell into to a pretty wonderful spot. Um, mm-hmm. He finishes like crazy. I mean, my favorite highlight of probably this entire draft cycle is him uh, catching the ball on offense or about like the free throw line, taking one dribble and going chest to chest with, I believe it's a Mississippi state center and the dude bouncing back about six feet <laughs> and Maxie just flipping in the layup. Um, he's a great point of attack defender. Um, again, build strong, uh, long arms, uh, touch at the free throw line. Um, and, uh, uh, touch the free throw line, uh, floater touch. I think that the, the shooting, uh, has some, you know, small adjustments that need to be made, but generally, uh, you just buy this guy. And then the the other thing with him is that uh, he's just wired to be a professional basketball player. Mm-hmm. Um, guys who uh, take and make the shots that he takes and makes with the attitude he takes and makes them are uh, are yeah. dudes that I generally want. Um, <laughs> and when you get that with the rest of the package, it's just somebody to me who seems built to overperform, overperform their draft slot. Yep. Uh, another quick one. The jury is still out on this you know, blank on this draft pick from, you know, in the last couple of years. Uh, Wendell Carter Jr. Hmm. Um, speaking of, speaking of the Chicago Bulls, um, sort of had a, a, a strange year at Duke uh, when, you know, uh, had Bagley sort of unexpectedly show up that the fit wasn't magical, then didn't really get the playmaking responsibility he needed in, in Chicago during his time there hasn't really been uh, treated as like a big with skills. Instead, he's sort of been like a, a glue guy. Um, and I think that there is a lot of uh, positional flexibility where, you know, he, he can present problems that that less mobile fives can't handle. And he can present strength that the thinner like wing fours mm-hmm. are incapable of doing. And I, like, I still think he shoots. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would say Wendell Carter is somebody that I would buy that has had a, less than ideal first couple of years, but is, is capable of blooming now that Chicago is in a better place coach and front office wise. Mm, mm. <laughs> the coaching was interesting to say the least. All right. So you told me that the, the Detroit Pistons current situation uh, makes, makes little sense to you. Um, so we, we talked about doing an exercise where you redraft the, the 2020 draft for them, run their free agency. Um, and you, you tell me what you're looking for in the next two or three years because it's easy to be a critic. It's a lot more difficult to kind of fill in the spaces. So what you got? Okay, so um, I think that my difficulty with the Pistons is that I love their first pick. Hmm. Um, and I thought that this was uh, like taking Killian Hayes at seven. Killian Hayes is a wonderful guard. Um, he gets the D'Angelo Russell comparison. Um, 
which uh, is is kind of outdated because that comparison comes from uh, his year prior when he wasn't as physically developed, um, where he had to take a lot more of the, the craft finishes. Um, and then this most recent year at Ulm, uh, he developed the ability to blow by people. He added uh, explosiveness in and out of his moves um, and sort of extended beyond that idea. Um, and so at seven, like this would be exactly what I would do. I was like, yes, Detroit is on the right pathway. You know, they get um, sort of seen as a forgotten franchise. Yep. Um, and uh, and then they, they took... They, they took Isaiah Seward at 16. Um, yeah, um, I, I I don't get it. Um, Isaiah Stewart is like an extremely hardworking, uh, uh, long-limbed big who eventually like will shoot, but he's a straight center who you can only play in some pick and roll coverages. Um, it doesn't really make sense with the bigs that are currently on their roster, but it also doesn't necessarily align with um, like the, the visions of the modern NBA. Um, especially like with guys like Alexei Pokashevsky, Brescia Chua, Tyrese Maxey, like there are a bunch of interesting fits for a rebuilding team. Like you don't necessarily have to go win now as a, or, you know, best fit as a team that is working on rebuilding, yeah. but to take guys that you believe could be on to the next playoff Pistons team, would you than, I would, t- I would take Poku. Mm. Um, just because like there's not expectations, so you can slow play him, and because he's also your second first round pick, there's even more of uh, an ability to, you know, uh, play him in the G League, play him, you know, situational minutes um, with lineups that make sense and that allow him to to fit a certain role as he uh, loses his sort of lost year of development um, while adding strength. Like to me, that made a lot of sense. Uh, he also would be uh, another playmaker. Um, this roster, which I will get to, we get to free agency, doesn't necessarily have a lot of decision makers on it outside of, of Blake and Killian. Yep. Um, so to add, you know, a uh, incisive passer who um, can make something out of nothing uh, does make sense for the the roster of bigs that I did add going forward. Um, so to me, that makes sense. I mean, it's probably going to seem um, a, like a little bit of a reach to to put him on at that point. Okay. Uh, to some people, but I'm also again more willing to make mistakes and when in doubt you take the weight. Yep. Uh, next, we got uh, Sadiq at 19. Yep. I think Sadiq's fine. Um, my concern is that he's a four to me. Um, and if you're going to play him higher up the up the rotation, so a three, or I mean, they might even put him in two at some lineups, just 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 based on how big this team is. Um, is that he doesn't necessarily have the foot speed. Um, and he was put in a system where he was able to um, always have coverage, and NBA teams are going to be able to put him on islands. Mm. That's not necessarily conducive to this particular team, which, like, Blake is not is not going to protect you with the rim. Um, so while his shooting is extraordinarily helpful, again, he's not a, uh, a ball handler or um, a versatile three. Yeah. Um, if you wanted to go like the again like the builder out, you have RJ Hampton who's an athlete, um, a, a, you know a guy who will sprint the lane. Um, uh, you know offers uh, both top shelf athleticism and the idea of like he can be an off ball too, and, and you sort of have a a, a skill a, a skill focused guy in in Killian, and then you have like just a all gas no breaks guy in RJ Hampton. That would be interesting. Maxi was still on the board. Yeah. Uh, 
you could go, you could get even more playmaking, go Malachi, or you could just get Desmond Bain and get a grown up. Like there was a ton of versatility to this pick. Um, Sadiq is, I would say it's a, it's a fine pick. It's a little bit uninspired. Um, he's also on the much older side. Mm-hmm. I think he's 22 yep. plus at this point, maybe 22 and like a half. Um, so if the next best Pistons team is, uh, you know, in three or four years or five years, um, you didn't really get any value um, out of him in terms of the first contract and um, his best years may be spent on teams that win like 30 games. Hmm. Gotcha. And then I think they had one, one more pick or do you, yeah, want- they picked uh Saban Lee at, at 38. Yeah. Um, Saban Lee is sort of the, uh, the idea of RJ Hampton, uh, <laughs> like in terms of like the idea of you pair Killian with like a, a nuts athlete. Yep. Yeah. Off ball. Um, yeah. Uh, Saban Lee got to the cup and he like, I, I think it's interesting. Um, like this, this sort of pairing that you have this the, uh, pick and roll guy who can, who can manipulate a defense. And if there is a bad rotation, you swing into a guy like Saban Lee, you can really get there uh, uh, without a problem um, and take advantage of it. Um, this draft doesn't really have defensive wings. So normally this would be a circumstance where, in you know between 35 and 50 there's guys who couldn't quite put it together but have like a tool or two yeah um, most of those guys got moved up just because of the the importance of wings yep and the uh relative scarcity in the draft um everybody wants wings there weren't particularly wings so the ones that were that you know, were there got you know went up high mm-hmm. um robert woodard is i guess like the, the one that would fit in that for traditional mold uh, again, Saban Lee is a, a good pick who, who I like, but the, there's not stash guys um, just based on the alignments of the seasons. A, a lot of the, the stash guys who would have got picked um, mm-hmm. didn't get the promises they wanted and return it back, uh, you know, a, a week before the draft, basically. Yeah. Um, Tamias Ramsey is, is a shooter, but I don't think that that's necessarily what the team needs. Um, I still think Trey Jones could, could be an NBA point guard, um, but I understand not necessarily wanting to split those reps with, uh, with Killian immediately. So yeah, I mean Saban Lee is, is fine. I think the draft isn't it this is I would say a generally unimaginative draft outside of the steward pick. Yep. Uh but like it it seems competent. That wasn't the uh the eyebrow raising thing. Well what was the eyebrow raising thing? Yeah, um the rest of the roster is big men. <laughs> That's they, they got it all big. It's like I, I don't even think there's a way to to fix like you could go through and like I guess you know say oh I would offer this person this but like an important thing for for young guys is having a roster that like it doesn't have to be the roster that will be the next playoff team. Yeah, everybody has to fit the archetypes that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. So like your center could be you know a shooting center who doesn't necessarily like perform as well as you need him to, but mm-hmm. he's you know a a lesser version of the guy that you're looking for for the vision of how you want to play basketball. Mm-hmm. And it creates a d- developmental synergy if you have multiple young guys where they're playing and their role them too, and they're developing, making the right decisions at the same time. And you can you know align them uh, to like get real meaningful reps in the right way and making the right reads, even if you don't have the best players around them. Yep. Um, and the Pistons kind of can't do that uh, for Seku or or for Killian. Um, like obviously, this matters more with with guards and wings than bigs. Yep. Um, just because they have an outsized decision-making process. Yep. Um, but yeah, um, the rest of this roster is, it doesn't really make sense to me. Um, I guess like they really believe in John and Musa, um, who, uh, loves to score the basketball. 
Loves to, I'm sorry, loves to attempt to score the best goal. That's probably closer. I, so I, I don't, I don't know how you feel about this take, but I actually don't think that Jeremy Grant and Blake Griffin is a terrible combo. Uh, it's an expensive combo. Um, but I think, you know, the, the only thing that is kind of missing is Jeremy isn't a huge shot blocker. Um, but I think having that mobility, you know, at that, at, at those spots, you know, with those two, I don't know even who else would start probably Killian and maybe Seku with like the lawn, right. To, to add in some shooting, but yeah, they, it'll be interesting to see how they'd fill the rest of the roster out. But yeah, it's that's, I mean, and that's what separates like bad developmental teams and good developmental teams. It's like, you can have synergistic pairings, but finding like a three man lineup or a four man lineup, much less a five man lineup that you can get to mm-hmm. that unlocks everybody. Like I agree that like Blake's passing plus Jeremy's cutting is good, but they don't have three other guys that make that make perfect sense. Cause mm-hmm. like even Killian, who's, you know, a good shooter off the dribble, but that currently has a struggle with catch and shoot. Um, just based on how his form works right now, mm-hmm. you don't, that's not a natural pairing because it's not, it's going to limit the cutting a- angles for Jeremy. So it's difficult to get an alignment that can get the guys that you just like in theory based your franchise around mm-hmm. into the places where they can develop as basketball players. And man, that's a frustrating process. Yeah. The only thing I could think of is, you know, some of the guys that they'd sign that, that, that don't really fit can maybe be used as trade pieces to bring in, you know, young shooters and, and maybe some picks. I mean, they, they have a lot. They of, had, the worst part is they had young shooters available on the board and they chose not to take them Bain <laughs> was available twice yeah that that does sting a little bit all right less in depth version the same question what would you do if you're the rockets gm uh, um i mean first of all uh tillman fertita has a money problem yeah. um he doesn't have any <laughs> um and i don't think that he can sell both of them which would be like my like the general idea here is like when things really don't work, which like it seems to think you've done in Houston, you have to flip everything for assets. They just owe so much out of the Westbrook trade. And um, in a world where the NBA has to sell tickets, like you can't sell both of them and put out a bad team. Cause like Tillman needs that, that gate income. Mm-hmm. He needs to sell it to sponsors. And, and uh, if you have zero stars and like whatever young pieces, a, a Russ or Harden trade can bring you, like that might not sell enough tickets to save his team, mm-hmm. uh, which the NBA doesn't want. It really, really doesn't want Houston to go belly up. So I'm going to say that you uh, deal with whatever people are going to throw at you and you try to run it back uh, because I don't really see another option. Uh, mm-hmm. You just batten down the hatches. Uh, you deactivate Twitter. <laughs> you just don't, whatever people are saying about you. you oh, burner, deactivate the Twitter. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, the internet, what's that? Never heard of it. <laughs> Um, and you run it back. It's it's seventeen new games. You, you just do whatever you can. Underrated signing. They did. They did get Christian Wood. Um, the player I love. Uh, yeah. In a in a normal circumstance, he would be the best player on the on on the Rockets next year. But this is not a normal circumstance because of his money problems. So. Yeah, I I also like Bruno Caboclo too. Personally, I'm a big, big fan of him since his G League days. All right, let's get to uh, the next question, and then we'll we'll close it out here. So, what's the what's the next big trend for for NBA basketball? You got a good one? Yeah. Um, so, I'm I really enjoy watching ripple effects. Um, usually, you can find it just by uh, exasperated uh, scouts and parents being like, "This guy ruined the game," you know, like when Steph 
had his uh, his first breakout year. And, you know, every kid in America was, was chucking deep threes. Um, <laughs> and there's, you know, the first two years of outrage where, like, you know, a, a six-year-old tries to do it and people get mad. And then after that, it helps the game. Like, after that, people incorporate it and did you get, you know, actual prospects and, and people who've grown up on on the warped gravity and understanding how that works. Um, you get them into the system. Um, and I think that we are going to have a generation of uh, – young big guys who uh, watched a Denver Nuggets basketball game mm-hmm. and texted their coach and parents and said, why can't I get to run offense at the high post? Like, why don't I get to make these passes out of split cuts? Um, so I think that we have a, a generation of young guys who don't who like are willing to pick and roll and, and, and want to dunk on people, but also would like to, you know, make touch passes or if the, if they're not being covered, they can, you know, pump fake if the, if the big doesn't respect it, they get to shoot. Um, putting centers as if not the uh, the primary usage in it for a team have lineups where they're expected to to carry the usage of an offense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think that it's going to be next year, um, I, but I think in the next five to 10 years, that's the groundswell of talented bigs we're going to have is, is people who understand that three is greater than two and also mm-hmm. have a watch Jokic and, and Embiid and been like, oh yeah, I can do some of these things and let's build an offense where I'm allowed to. Mm-hmm. I thought that was one of the craziest trends of the draft was the amount of bigs drafted in the first round. Um, that was that was that was surprising to me, especially with um, a bunch of you know good guard and, and combo talent available. All right, so the the last thing is you know I'm, I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask me a question. Yeah, um, and so now that this draft's over and, and college basketball started, um, I like to to let games pile up. Um, you know, I'll watch, I'll watch the, the game of the moment, um, you know, because well, I, I can't stop watching basketball, but, um, <laughs> but I don't necessarily want to break it down because I, I like to, to deal with bigger sample sizes. So I've been going back to high school mm-hmm. um, and, and I wanted to ask you uh, staying away from the home squad um, because, you know, I want, I know you guys got some guys, yeah, but I know all those guys. So I need some names that maybe I couldn't get. Uh, immediately, you know, the, the, the real on the, on the ground material, give me a few uh, high school guys that you think uh, will be stars on the next level or guys to, to that everybody will know at the next level. All right. Um, let me think about this. I, he plays at a rival high school and I, I might catch some flack for saying his name, but, but Deshaun Harris Smith uh, at Paul, the six, you know, he's about six, three, um, rising sophomore, he's just a dog. Uh, he's just an absolute pit bull uh, with the basketball, getting to the paint, finishing. Uh, when when they played IMG uh, up at our place for for team takeover, our separation sports tournament, the the hoop fest, um, he tried to dunk on Mark Williams, and he almost landed it as a freshman. Um, so I just really like his his competitiveness. He's he's going to be a nightmare to play it against the next couple of years. Another one is uh, Caleb Williams. Um, plays at Sidwell, uh, freshman guard. It's already six four, six five. Um, just really smart with the basketball. You can tell that he comes from from a basketball family. Um, so his his father, uh, Kyle Williams, works for Sidwell and also Team Takeover. He's their their grassroots guy. Um, and he's been coming up through the system, and you can just tell because he's just so fundamentally sound. Um, really hard worker. Pretty pretty quiet. Um, pretty seems like a good quit good kid. Um, another one from, <laughs> from our rival. I mean, he's, 
I had, I had to give you another WCAC guy, but but Christian Watson at St. John's uh, blew up a bit this summer as far as the offers go. Um, got some high major ones. Is six five. I hear he's almost six six now. Uh, wing, uh, twenty twenty two. Really really aggressive uh, and getting after it, getting getting up on on ball screens and and cutting off uh, drives to the paint. Um, the offensive game, you know, it's coming along. Um, I saw him play when he was an eighth grader, uh, I believe a seventh grader as well. So it, it's progressed a bit, but his his defense is going to be his calling card for sure. Um, and then the last one, um, there was a kid, Mike Myrie, that, that transferred from the Baltimore area down to North Mech, uh, North Mecklenburg High School, um, Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, just really, really aggressive in the paint, uh, getting to the rim, finishing, uh, really athletic guard. Um, I think he can be really solid. Uh, doesn't have any Division One offers, and most of the scouts that I know in the area just don't understand it. Um, seems like a good kid, too. Uh, North Mech is a public school, so it's, it's, it's interesting that they – you'd move states away and, and go to the public school in the area. But, you know, I'm not sure as far as, you know, how it works down in that area. Um, I, I don't really know all that much about North Mec- Mecklenburg, honestly. So uh, let's, you know, I'm sure you got, you got some names too. Let's, let's see where. Yeah. So I just put out the the first batch of, uh, of, of guys that I saw. Um, I try to get across the country. Um, I, you know, I've got people like you on the ground who, who slide me some names and I've tried to stay uh 2021 2022 just because of those guys were the most uh up against the uh up against the wall um with how their schedules worked mm-hmm. um so the first one I got is uh Brandon Razor Moore he's a like a 6323 out of uh Jeffersonville Indiana plays for uh, Louisville Magic mm-hmm. um he's he's like your prototypical uh like off guard who can make stuff happen with the ball mm-hmm. um great shooter um at his strength, he went from I would say like a guy who had like D two buzz to I'm pretty sure he's going to be like a mid major plus uh, type of guy, uh, just based on on the on how much better he's gotten and how much more consistent he has gotten with with the versatility on his jumper. Um, the next one is sort of uh, the reason I did this this series. Uh, there was a kid who I got some tape from that nobody knew who he was, and like usually we say that like oh yeah you know he doesn't have any like no one knew this kid's name and couldn't find his name. And uh, I talked to multiple coaches that played his, his, his school and said, like, this is a high major kid, like full stop, high major kid, six, six guys, like plus four, plus five wingspan mm-hmm. goes to a uh, Brigden Academy in Maine. And I had to reach out to some, some international guys who had been trying to figure out where this kid went to in America because he's from Bahrain. Uh, his name is uh, Muzamil Amir uh, Mohamed Hamada, uh, easily high major guy, uh, super energy wing. Uh, was making high-level pick-and-roll reads, uh, you know, one-handed push passes uh, to the opposite corner when the big showed high. Uh, looked up his FIBA stats, and he's a plus shooter, you know, across the two-point, three-point, and, and free throw. Uh, easily somebody that, uh, if there were a normal circumstance, uh, would be, you know, uh, up and down ACC offers at the very least, um, and uh, fully expect him to, to be a national name soon. Uh, once they get the preps and the showcases going in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Um, 2021 kid, uh, the type of guy that we talked about earlier, um, the, the like D2, D1 guy is uh, Jalen Bedford out of Hutto, Texas. He plays for ASAK uh, mm-hmm. on the AAU circuit. Um, six two point guard, um, shoot first guy uh, in terms of his skills. But the thing that jumped out to me and the thing that I think will make him in 
uh, a extremely good college player that drives winning um, is the energy he plays with. Um, he was playing, uh, you know, major cir- uh, circuit teams in Texas, and he was jumping to try to bang out offensive rebounds and then chasing down if he missed. Uh, one of the guys who just came up with the ball multiple times, I watched him uh, take an offensive rebound away from from a uh, Big 12 high major wing, probably like a 6'7 kid. <laughs> he just ripped it out of his hands like, yeah, this is my offensive rebound. Uh, good passer, uh, has some shift to him. Uh, and that, that comes clear on the highlight tapes, but what doesn't come out is just the, the, this is the type of kid that uh, I would want on a team if I was a D2 coach. Just be like, oh, yeah, we're, we're winning games. Uh, easily a guy I would expect to win 100 games in his college career. Um, the next one's another Northeast kid. Uh, Deshaun Giddens goes to Woodstock uh, Academy in Connecticut. I think he plays for uh, any six on the UAA circuit. Um, he's He was a 2021 kid and reclassed into 2022. Uh, Six three, six four, uh, off guard, uh, ludicrous speed. Uh, there were passes that defenders thought were safe, and he could have probably caught them with the opposite hand. Um, was an on ball guy at his uh, Connecticut public school, had like a you know, a couple 50 point games, uh, but is learning how to be like a two, um, in college, um, which I think is probably uh, like he, he's going to have on ball juice just from that, but you know, being having the ability to to flip between uh, the one and the two while offering a pressing identity and 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 offering uh, both playmaking and uh, and the, and the defensive abilities um, leads me to believe that like mid major is the very bottom for him. Um, like yeah, that again would a story we've heard a hundred times. If if people knew, um, he'd be uh, there's some campuses that would be blowing up his phone. Hmm. Um, and then the last one is uh, it's it's outside this range, but it's a kid that uh, I've been watching for for a long time now. Uh, that's a 2023 guard, AJ Johnson. He's a Fresno kid, but he's down at Taft hmm. in Southern California now. Um, if you watch him, you're going to think Jalen Green based on how he moves. He's also from Fresno. Worked out with Jalen Green a lot. Yeah. I'd say like six two, six three point guard, and just the seeing a young guard that plays with pace. Um, I got taught when I was younger, it's not how fast you can go. It's how fast the defense thinks you're going to go. Mm. And nobody ever goes the same pace as him. You, he, you think he's going, you're on 100%, he's going to go 70. He's going to just squirm by you. He, they try to match 70, he goes to 30. They match 30, he goes to zero, then to 100. And it's just seeing a kid who's craft-focused and and plays with that kind of pace uh, is, is the special type of kid. Um, the shooting is developing, the body is developing. He's obviously uh, like, you know, a, a tall point guard means you got to be skinny. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is, this is a guy that it's just life. You, you, you never get the tall, like super strong point guards. It's just, it, it's a rare thing. But this is a guy that every time I've seen him, I'm just like, yeah, whatever he's ranking needs to be higher. Um, and there's not necessarily something I check, but it's a kid that uh, LA is going to appreciate. Let's put it like that. <laughs> Yeah, that 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 kid can really go. Um, I mean, I I saw videos of him. Someone someone sent me a, a video of him, you know, a, a year or two ago, and he's just ahead of his time for sure. I want to add in uh, one name. Um, he he had a high like high major offer list. He actually ended up committing to to Miami um, on the back in September. Uh, but Nizine Poplar, um, 
Yeah, yeah. Uh six six four, six five shooting guard, combo guard, whatever you want to call it. Uh twenty twenty one kid out of the uh mathematics, civics, and sciences charter school. Wow, that's a mouthful. But man, uh he he can score. Um he can he can finish in, in the paint pretty well, uh pretty athletic, sneaky athletic kid, and just the, the ball handle into his shot is just just really, really solid. So um I mean it sounds like you know him, uh, but I don't really think the general public knows him. What what AU team was he on? Um, I don't actually know. I've only seen his recent stuff. Which yeah, is all, you know, uh, like I think uh, I think it was a non shoe affiliated team, if if memory yeah. serves. Um, um, yeah, uh, late bloomer special. Um, and those are the guys that you always want to bet on—the ones that uh, like really come out of nowhere. Maybe you're late, you know, I know he's late to the game. Um, and watching people learn in real time is like one of the the real blessings of basketball is you can go back to somebody's game three weeks later and they're like, Oh, they were missing that read before making it now. Mm. Uh, and seeing those little development happen, even, even the stuff that I've seen, I've probably seen like six or seven of his games. And each time he's a guy who's learning new things and, and learning new ways to, to use his talents on the court. And that's a, that's a fun thing to watch. Uh, Miami got one. So he actually plays for Kyle Lowry's team. So it's okay. Okay. Lowry. Nice. Yeah, that's my phone. So, all right, appreciate the time, brother. This this was absolutely fantastic. Anything, uh, anything to plug? Anything to share with the people? Tell them, tell them where they can find you on Twitter and all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, so my Twitter is uh, above the break three. Um, I do my writing on Patreon, but all the work is free. Um, so it's the it's a link in my bio. Um, if you have a couple bucks to spare, greatly appreciate it. If not, everything that you could want to read uh, is is on there. Uh, I think I. have t- like between 15 and 20 of the wing breakdowns mm-hmm. along with uh, my series on guards called the heuristic, which is, you know, the basic question of what can a guard do simply that's on 10 of the guards in the 2020 class. Mm-hmm. I have slow feet don't eat, which is on bigs, um, four different segments on, on eight guys. And then I have the recruit review, um, which I just published the most recent one last week. And then I think I have another one coming out uh, either Saturday or Sunday, depending on how good I am at editing. Um, yeah, uh, work is always free. Um, but if you have anything to spend, it's appreciated. If not, uh, a share of like goes a long way. Got you. Got you. Well, appreciate the time, brother. Um, definitely, definitely keep in touch on the line. All right. Thank you so much.